And on today's morning show, I am absolutely delighted to be uh, making an acquaintance for the first time with Dr. Michael Hansen, who is uh, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. And uh, the reason for uh, his visit to the morning show is because of uh, some exciting research that he is doing and research that is going to be uh, sustained because uh, of, a, of a grant from the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. And uh, this particular research project is titled Opening the Door to Backroom Politics, Local Government Digital Transparency and Privacy in Wisconsin. Uh, Dr. Hansen is going to be exploring the rather wide variation that one sees uh, between various counties, uh, local governments in Wisconsin, and how forthcoming and transparent they are with the information that they digitally share with the public. And uh, so he's going to be exploring uh, the local level government websites in uh, uh, throughout the state of Wisconsin. So 72 counties, 190 cities, one, for over 400 villages, and all towns and school districts as well. And it's Sounds like a monumentally uh, challenging project, but something extremely worthwhile. And uh, so we're going to primarily spend our time talking about this research project with uh, Professor Hansen. We welcome you to the morning show. Thank you for having me here. I'm pretty excited. Glad we can have this conversation. Um, I, I have a couple of background questions to ask you. And, and actually, the first one, which I didn't warn you about, but hopefully it won't shake you too much, is uh, would love to know the origins of your interest in political science. What drew you into this uh, academic discipline and at what point did that happen in your life? Uh, thanks for the question. I uh, attended Parkside as an undergraduate student and originally I was kind of finding my place in the world and you know for most younger people 18 and 20 year olds you're thinking about what job will give me the most prestige and people will think I'm the smartest person. Um, so I originally wanted to go for law, and then I realized I really hated that route uh, fairly quickly. Um, <laughs> so I basically had a few classes with a mentor of mine, Jonathan Olson. He was a professor at Parkside. He's now at Texas Women's University. And he really took me under his wing. We had a lot of interests together, European politics, American politics. And uh, at one point, he kind of pulled me aside and he said, hey, I know you're thinking about applying to law school, but you're going to be miserable. Uh, and we all agree that you're going to be miserable, so you might want to think about graduate school. And that's the route I went. And I, I from there, I went to University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee to receive my master's and PhD. Absolutely wonderful experience. The training was everything I could ask for. The opportunities were more than amazing. And thanks to that fantastic training at UW-Milwaukee, I landed a postdoctoral fellowship at Lund University in Sweden. And from there, my career kind of was fast-tracked. So I got lots of opportunities to do research, to publish with really smart people, and it's been great since then. Wow. So you're not someone as a high school student, for instance, who had a kind of exceptional interest in what was going on in the country politically? I mean, not particularly? I can say, hands down, I was anything but exceptional in high school. So <laughs> I, I can say uh, with very with much sincerity that I was very lucky to even get into Parkside. Um, and as soon as I got to Parkside, I was a little bit behind in, in terms of being able to write uh, and, you know, kind of do these basic things that other people could do. 
so I had to work my way up and I just happened to be very lucky and find an interest and find somebody that took an interest in me that had no, no business doing so. So I'm a very lucky person. Wow. Very good. It sounds like you had a, a tremendously uh, important experience at Parkside and it must be uh, exciting for you to be there now as a, as a member of the faculty. I wonder if you could say a word about uh, the challenges of doing what you do uh, in the age of COVID. And, and actually, I'm, I'm really kind of curious uh, about, uh, particularly about teaching and uh, what it was like when all of this sort of descended upon all of us uh, in, in, in the middle of March. Um, for the kind of courses that you taught uh, for the political science department, uh, what kind of encumbrance was it to suddenly be teaching uh, virtually? Yeah, that's a really good question. I can say for me, uh, I had a much easier time than some of my colleagues did. So I, I'm relatively younger, uh, co uh, you know, scholar. So uh, at UW-Milwaukee, I was offered the opportunity to learn how to teach online through teaching assistantships. And we were offered the opportunity when we became dissertators to teach one class online, one class in person every semester. And thanks to that training, I kind of had a leg up right away. Moving forward from there, in Sweden, I received exceptional training in teaching in higher education. So I completed the certifications there to be able to teach in higher education throughout Scandinavia. And part of that focus was on online teaching. And at Parkside, we have a fantastic teaching and learning center. And the teaching and learning center specifically has a summer course uh, that faculty members can take to learn how to better teach online and learn the tools that you can use online, some of the techniques, read some of the research that indicates what students are most receptive to and how they learn better online in, in different ways. And thanks to that training, when we switched to online, it was a pretty smooth transition for me. So I don't know if, I don't know if you want me to say anything about like how I approach teaching online that might be different or. Actually, it, it would be great to hear just at least a little bit about that. And I mean, maybe a couple of the ways in which uh, that are in a sense sort of beyond the obvious in terms of being able to teach effectively uh, in the virtual world, shall we say, and particularly in your own discipline of political science. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you've experienced uh, over the course of time, uh, you know, with new technologies and new ways that we access information and the quickness of it, everybody seems to have a little bit shorter, shorter uh, attention span when it comes to learning new things. You want to, you want to access the information immediately and you want to move on from there. So one of the aspects that a colleague, colleague and I had looked into is, you know, the length of video lectures. So how long should video lectures be so that students engage with these types of lectures? And it turns out, unfortunately, they should be rather short. So we started thinking, you know, if a student doesn't want to sit at their computer and they don't want to watch a video lecture for 30 minutes, 30 minutes is just too long. How can they access this? How can we, you know, for lack of a better phrase, force them to access this information in alternative means? So one of the ways we came up with, uh, and my colleague's name is John Navarro. He is now at Sam Houston State University. One of the ideas we came up with is, is taking our video lectures and transitioning to podcasts. So all of our students basically come into the classroom and you ask them what they have their AirPods on and you ask them what they're listening to and they're always listening to podcasts. So we decided to kind of offer this alternative media platform for students to access lectures. So for me, I offer three different ways of kind of accessing the materials so that students have choice. I provide them with the written lectures that they can read through. I provide them with video lectures, PowerPoints that I talk to and they can watch. And then I provide these podcast lectures that they can listen to in their car or on their way to work. And so far, students have been exceptionally receptive to it. I've been, I've been quite shocked how many students 
listen to the podcast lectures over everything else. Wow. That's cool. I also am curious to know, uh, I, I've actually never taken a political science course. That was just not part of my uh, collegiate education. But I'm assuming that uh, discussion is a huge element in the typical political science course. And I'm just wondering what you have found in terms of the quality of discussion, class discussion, when it occurs in a virtual environment versus a number of students uh, in the room. Are there things about it that make it harder? Are there things about it that maybe make it easier or richer? That's a really good question. I think that in terms of online teaching, that is the one area uh, where there is a severe deficiency. So it is hard to engage students online or have students engage with each other because most students are taking online classes because they like the flexibility of being able to access the material and access the assignments on their own time. That creates a difficult situation. So I've kind of gone a different route with discussion-based activities. So instead of having, uh, you know, you know, if you tell students, you need to post a comment to this question and then you need to respond to two students' questions, you don't really get the depth that you would like, right? Like they're trying to just do the assignment. So for me, I found that giving them the material, giving them the lectures, allowing them to access it in multiple ways, but then asking them to reflect on what they have read and what the lectures have said is probably the best way to really get them to engage with the material because that way they can focus on the things that are most interesting to them. And then my job is at the end of the day, after these reflections are due, my job is to fill the gaps and see if there's any deficiencies in terms of what they, what information they acquired, any, any, any confusion on key concepts or terms. So I think that's probably the best way for me to approach an online class. Very good. Uh, one other background question I, I have for you, your biography uh, from the news release that came to me from, uh, from Tim McKenzie at Parkside says, Dr. Michael Hansen is a first generation scholar. And then it goes on to, to explain uh, where you received your, your, your training and so on. But could you uh, take us inside those intriguing words, a first-generation scholar? Yeah, so that's, uh, I guess those words are something that I hold very important to me. I was the first person in my family to go to college and receive a bachelor's degree, and then I continued on to receive my master's and PhD. And I like giving that signal to students especially to let them know that I've been in the same position that you might be in and that I can relate to the experiences that you are having. One of the difficulties with teaching at the, at the university level I have found is that sometimes students are still in the mindset of high school and that they view the teacher, the instructor, as kind of the enemy still. You're trying to get me to do things that I don't want to do. Um, and I found that if you can break these barriers and you can let them know, hey, I was in your position at one point, uh, I had difficulty with writing essays. I had difficulty with doing these things. I had nobody to look to because nobody in my family had gone to college before. You can start to break down these barriers between you and the student, and you can, you know, create a, a better environment for them to come to you if they have issues. Hmm. I really appreciate that because I know that I believe at both Parkside and certainly at Carthage, where I'm a member of the faculty, uh, there is quite, quite a large proportion of the student body that are first-generation college students. And, uh, and it seems to me that, that it, it is easy for a given professor, if, if that's not part of who they are or part of who they were, uh, to take a lot of things for granted about a student as they walk in the door. And, uh, and it seems to me a real key to being 
successful and to helping uh, first-generation college students themselves to be successful is to understand some of what you were just talking about. And I suspect that uh, your own background makes a huge difference when it comes to working with those kind of students particularly. Thank you. Dr. Michael Hansen is joining me. He is Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. And uh, if time permits, by the end of the program, uh, we're going to talk some politics and what it's like to teach political science during a year of, of a presidential campaign. But we want to turn our attention now to what is our primary focus in this conversation, and namely some research that uh, Professor Hansen is doing, a project titled Opening the Door to Backroom Politics, Local Government, Digital Transparency and Privacy in Wisconsin. Uh, so it's a mouthful, but uh, behind those words is a really intriguing and important project that uh, is going to help all of us understand uh, the wide variation that we find when it comes to governmental transparency at the more local level. Uh, first of all, Professor Hansen, what got you interested in this in the first place? Was there some moment in time when you kind of noticed something about these wide variations in in governmental transparency or did this project come to you in some other way so i have a few i have a few reasons for wanting to apply for this grant to engage in this this project but i'll, I'll take a step back first uh, and and give my personal reason for wanting to engage in this project um, my wife is a, a swedish citizen she's not a u.s citizen and one of the biggest jokes in our household is just how incredibly difficult it is to find information from the U.S. government. So we have to deal with, you know, immigration authorities all the time, and we will go on a website, and the website will say, "Hey, you can now you can now submit this document online," and you click the link, and the link does not exist, right? Hmm. Um, and it's the biggest joke in our household is talking about the inefficiency of kind of bureaucracy. So thinking about this at the national level, I kind of wanted to take a step back. Um, what is it like at these lower levels? Is the information available that citizens most need to acquire in order to do daily activities? So we know that states in the United States have policing powers. Policing powers include things such as uh, being able to get a marriage license, um, you know, pay your taxes, do, do these types of activities, you know, get a driver's license. And I just wanted to know, is this information available for all citizens? So that's kind of my personal, my personal approach of why I was kind of interested in it. I just want to ask, um, your wife, as you said, uh, is from Sweden, actually, originally. Uh, are, is, is her, has her experience been that in Sweden, the experience is very, very different, that information is much more accessible? Or is it just that because she is a Swedish immigrant, she needs a lot of information that is hard to get? I'm just kind of curious what, what, what that contrast really is all about. Uh, so for us, so we, we've been living back and forth in Sweden for, uh, I've been living back and forth in Sweden for five years now. Uh, so we live in both places. Mm. Uh, and my, as somebody who's had Swedish residency, my, my opinion on it and her opinion, I guess, is that all of the information is easier to access, but maybe equally slow, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. So here the process is slow because you can't find the information. There you can find the information easily, but things are a little bit slow. Are a little bit slow. Gotcha. Great. So, what were some other reasons that uh, led you to want to undertake this particular research project? So, the first 
the most important reason does not deal with the substance of the actual topic. So the most important reason is we're in a situation of COVID-19 and we at Parkside, we have students that, you know, they have to work while they go to school. So I wanted to see, is there anything out there that I can provide an opportunity for students that have lost hours or have lost their jobs to be able to engage in research and be able to get paid for their efforts? The second reason from the student level is uh, this engagement in high impact practices for teaching. So we constantly throw out this, this concept of high impact practices. And I don't know that we, I don't know that we actually know what that means. Um, but what we do know is that at the end of the day, what we would like is that we would like students to have a fuller, more enriching experience in learning. In my experience, Parkside students on average, they seem to be attending courses to check a box rather than maybe learn a skill or acquire knowledge, right? It's like, I have to have these classes, I'm gonna check these boxes and I'm gonna finish these classes. But, you know, it's very surface level. So this led me to wonder whether there was an approach that could engage students more thoroughly. While doing that, I decided that it's probably important for students feeling like they're actually contributing to science. So I wanted to create a project that students could engage in the research process at all levels and that they could have this enriching experience and they could feel like they're doing something, they're contributing. So I'm not sure if you saw in the article, the students and I, I have included the students as co-authors on a paper from a lab session we did this spring. So we already started looking at county governments throughout the United States. The situation of COVID-19 happened and we wanted to know what explains variants and information on COVID-19 on county government websites throughout the United States. So the students over the course of a week collected information on whether or not county government websites, one, mentioned COVID-19 at all, and two, provided safety guidelines for their citizens on COVID-19. From this point on, we collected some other variables. We wrote up a study, and that study is now under review uh, at a journal. I don't want to say the journal name because the decision isn't there yet. Um, but the, we currently have a revise and resubmit, which basically says there's a lot of support for the publication of this study. Um, but you know, there's a few things to change. Wow. Let's, uh, let's go into that, that specific matter of, of information related to COVID-19. And mm -hmm. so you had your students going into the websites basically of every county, all 72 counties throughout the state of Wisconsin. No, we did the entire United States. Oh my gosh. I misunderstood that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And again, county by county by county through the yes. whole country. County by county. And we also did these larger municipal districts that are not associated with the county, such as Houston, the city of Houston. So in all, we looked at 3,082 county governments or, you know, self-municipal governments in the United States. Wow. So uh, I'm not sure it's easy to even summarize uh, something so sprawling, but uh, were there a, at least a couple of general takeaways from the information that was garnered from that in terms of where information could be found versus places where information was scarce or even non-existent yeah so let me say we we collected this data from april 17th to april 24th so we tried to we tried to be as time bound as possible within a week right it wouldn't be fair to look at some county governments at the beginning of the pandemic and some county governments three months later that wouldn't be fair in terms of comparison so we, we looked over the course of, of this week, uh, three of my students, Kelly Sadowski, uh, Sarah Meyer, and Joe Blazinski, they collected this data. And then we had another person, you know, checking to make sure that there was some intercoder reliability tests. 
So in the end, we estimated these multiple regression models uh, in order to predict, you know, what are the factors that impact whether or not a county government website either mentions COVID-19 or provides safety precautions. A couple of the variables we included was population density. We thought, you know, that county governments that, you know, aren't very dense, they have less likelihood of contracting COVID-19, therefore they'd be more likely to mention them. We also looked at the proportion of the households with internet. We figured that if a county did not have a large proportion of households with internet, they probably wouldn't provide information on COVID-19 on their website, maybe through the news or some alternative means instead. Then we also included COVID-19 cases and deaths. So we wanted to know, are county governments more likely to provide this information as the number of cases are going up in the county or the number of deaths? And then finally, since partisanship in the US is just so extreme in this climate, and from the word go, this pandemic has been a partisan issue, you know? Um, for example, a few studies have looked at whether or not you get your information from Trump or you get your information from on a different news source. People that receive their information from Trump are 30% more likely to believe in conspiracy theories about COVID-19. Um, you know, we found that studies have found that Republican politicians are more likely to tweet different concepts about COVID-19, such as blaming China and other things where Democrats are more likely to emphasize safety and staying safe and washing your hands and stuff. So we kind of looked at this partisanship. So we decided to include a measure of partisanship in our models, and that was Clinton vote share in the 2016 election by county. And, and what we found is that even when you control for population density, the proportion of households with internet, COVID-19 cases, and COVID-19 deaths, predominantly Democratic counties are much more likely to provide, to either mention COVID-19 or provide safety precautions. So in terms of mentioning COVID-19, uh, Democratic counties are about 30% more likely to mention COVID-19. In terms of safety, safety precautions, they're about 25% more likely to provide information regarding safety precautions on their website. Hmm. I, I'm just staggered that such a small group of students could garner that much information in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my, heads around, wrap my head around how that's even possible. I mean, it, it almost feels like you were running a poli-sci sweatshop <laughs> from dawn till midnight. I mean, uh, these students in front of screens doing nothing but gathering this, this information. Uh, take us inside the nuts and bolts of, of exactly how this information was gathered and how long would it typically take uh, to investigate a given county in Nevada or New Hampshire or, or wherever it, it might be? So let me give you a, a few a few reasons why it was quite it was quite easy to do. Um, the first reason why it's easy is that it, it, it seems as though there are templates for these county governments. So if you look at a particular state, you will see that county government websites mirror each other, so they're very similar. So as soon as you figure out the pattern of websites, it becomes very easy to see. Hey, you know, if I click this, it's going to tell me that the court what the hours are opening for the courts or something like that. Um, the other reason why it was quite easy to do is I allowed them to use the search function. So if they looked at all of the website pages and they couldn't find anything, they would then go to the search function and type in COVID and see if anything popped up. So in terms of coding something like whether or not COVID-19 was mentioned, super fast, right? You can see whether or not the website mentions it at all. For safety precautions, uh, we also wanted to be very conservative with our estimates. So what we did is instead of 
instead of being very rigid and saying the county website needs to, you know, tell you how to wash your hands or any of this information, what we did is, are there any safety precautions at all? Or are there links to any safety precautions at all? So if a website said, hey, the Wisconsin Health Department has, you know, guidelines on how to stay safe, we coded that county government website as having safety precautions. So because of these kind of conservative estimates, it was, it was pretty quick. It was, you know, a couple of minutes per, per county. Right. I guess when we're talking about that quick a search, then uh, if one is working efficiently and with good focus, then then a lot is possible. What what kind of time are we talking about? And is this time that was spent in class or is this, in a sense, outside of their other classwork and in a sense done on their own time, so to speak? So this was outside. So we were not sitting in the classroom while we did this because of the pandemic parks right. got closed down. Um, what we, what we did do is uh, the students received independent study for it. So their activities on this project, they also received independent study credits, which would be like course credits. So that's also an incentive, right? They're supposed to set, spend as much time on the project as they would for an average course in a week. So it, it was kind of up to them to, to create their own schedule of when they wanted to collect the information, knowing the timeline, uh, and that's, that's how we approached it. I cannot say enough positive things about these, these three students, though. These three students, you know, normally anytime you're, you're, you're conducting research with undergraduate students, you feel like you have to hold everyone's hand and double-check everything, and we did do intercoder reliability checks just to double-check and make sure that the information was accurate, uh, but, you know, these, these three students I trust to to get the job done, and they did. Great. You you already mentioned the fact that uh, when we're talking about a a particular municipality or government that was Democrat versus Republican, that it was significantly more likely that there would be safety information about COVID uh, available on, on on their website. I'm just curious if you recall um, what portion of these three thousand plus websites that you visited. How many of them, roughly what portion of them had absolutely no mention of COVID whatsoever as though COVID didn't even exist? So about 25% of them had no mention of COVID at all. Um, even more shocking, uh, even more striking, I, I suppose, would be that uh, around 6% of counties had no government websites at all. So if we, if we add the, the counties that had government websites but not, did not mention COVID at all and the counties that um, did not even have a website, that's about 31% of the counties in the United States. So a, a little over 900. Wow. I'm also curious about something that had not really crossed my mind, although I've been thinking about this lately for a couple of other reasons, and that, that's the fact that though so many of us take for granted being connected uh, via, via the Internet, that in fact there's all kinds of Americans who for whom there is no connection whatsoever. They don't own a computer. They don't have internet access at all. Um, can you give us some idea of just how prevalent that is, that sort of technical disconnection, and and where we see that? I mean, is that, I mean, I think it's easy to assume that that's in the, the wildest portions of Idaho or something, but, mm -hmm. but I suspect that, that that's in fact uh, something that is maybe more pervasive and wide ranging than a lot of us assume. What can you tell us about that? And also how you were even able to gather that kind of information? That's a really good question. 
Uh, we were directed by one of the reviewers of our article to include the internet subscriptions variable in the analysis, and they pointed us to the United States Census, in particular the five-year American Community Survey. So in the American Community Survey of the U.S. Census, they ask people about their internet subscriptions. Now, when they ask this question, the numbers are surprisingly low, I would think, that you might find them surprising because uh, pe people nowadays, especially like students, when we survey students and we ask them about how they do their course material, lots of people use their cell phone or tablets now. So what we saw 10 years ago was we did see this massive gap between rural and urban America in terms of internet subscription. That gap has been largely wiped out by the fact that people have internet phone subscriptions and they tend to do lots of their data, lots of their filling out forms for government and doing these other things on their phone. Um, I'm thinking my mom doesn't have a computer, but she uses her phone or her tablet for everything. Mm. Um, and so there, I don't think there was any counties that were under like 62 to 65% of people that had some type of subscription. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Hansen, who is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. Just now we have been talking about uh, a research project specifically looking at information dissemination uh, when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. So Professor Hansen, if I understand correctly, uh, this research project for which you've received a grant uh, is 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 something else i don't know if it's entirely separate or or related or connected somehow but in which you're going to be looking very specifically at the state of wisconsin tell us what happens from this point on yeah um so th this project is, is slightly related so the topic of the of the research for which i received the grant is we do want to continue to look in wisconsin in regards to this variance on, on uh, websites, but we don't want to just look at counties. So we want to look at is, are there deficiencies in terms of information on school board websites? Are some areas of Wisconsin doing a better job of conveying, you know, how to get a hold of your teacher um, or, you know, access to information such as school lunches or something like that. So Wisconsin is going to be our case study in terms of trying to predict any variance in information looking at multiple levels of government. We also want to look at this issue of privacy. So the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership, one of their concerns was they want to they wanted understand, you know, what are the privacy concerns of both citizens and elected officials? And this is a crucial time to think about this topic because of the fact that we have, you know, you, you, we've read so many news stories on election interference, on mail-in voting, on whether or not, you know, absentee voting is a good thing. Is mail-in voting different than absentee voting? It's not. But these questions pop up, you know. Um, so one aspect to go beyond looking at government websites is we really want to survey local level elected officials and we want to get their opinion on what are the privacy concerns that citizens should have in regards to their personal data. And we want to know what are their concerns when it comes to election interference. Do local level officials have this, these concerns or are these concerns wildly, you know, something that the national level is talking about, but in reality, local level officials have confidence in their elections. So this is really a, a different kind of project in that uh, it's it's going to take a lot more than a couple of minutes, I should mm -hmm. think, <laughs> to yeah. gather the kind of information that that you're talking about. Um, what will the kind of the nuts and bolts be? What what will be the process by which this information is gathered? Mm -hmm. 
So the first part of the project will be creating these data sets similar to the way we did with these county government websites and information on COVID-19. Then there will be a second part of the research, which is uh, I will be creating, and, or I have already created, uh, but I will be altering a survey for these local level officials. And we will disseminate this survey to these local level officials and try to get them to fill that out to get their, get their impressions on privacy and election security. Then the students will make sure to, you know, after they have collected the data for the data sets, they will kind of poke these elected officials and make sure that they fill out the survey. So we'll, we'll bug them enough to try to get this response rate a bit higher. Wow. What kind of time frame are we talking about? This project will, will be ongoing over the course of the next year. So I, I envision it will be the next year. We would love, we would love to, to you know, put the survey out before the election and get an idea of concerns before the election. And if possible, if you know, time permitting and money is not a factor, uh, we would also like to have a follow-up survey after the election asking about whether or not they think their concerns were validated or did you have concerns after that you didn't think you had before. And try to kind of get an understanding of how these local level officials are thinking about privacy and transparency. Hmm. Are you going into this with uh, a lot of assumptions preconceived notions that you are going to be seeing if they are uh, in a sense substantiated or 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 or, or not or, uh, or or are you trying to enter this with as clean a slate as possible you know a student asked me this they said you know what is the outcome that you foresee and I have no idea and the reason why I have no idea is because there are only a handful of studies maybe six that I've ever looked at uh, government websites, local government websites at all. And they only ever look at a subsample of one level of government. So I'm not entirely sure what we're going to find in this regard. I also am not sure what we're gonna find in terms of when we survey these local level officials, officials, what we might find either. I should say that my area of expertise lies in European and American political behavior, mostly predicting you know, voting for particular political parties or gender politics in these areas. So. This isn't entirely in my wheelhouse, so that's a good thing, I think, because I can come in with the, a clean slate and kind of, I have no expectations. We find what we find. Science does its thing. Hmm. Um, did it come as a pleasant surprise to receive this grant of more than $20,000 from the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership? Uh, and what kind of gauntlet uh, <laughs> did you have to undergo in, in order to secure this? I don't know the gauntlet, but I, I can tell you I was very shocked when I received the email. Um, shocked for two reasons. One, anytime you apply for this type of research funding, it's always more likely that you don't receive it than you do, right? The second reason is, I mean, we in Wisconsin are facing terrible budget deficit. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the UW system, but we know that we're going to receive cuts. You know, hopefully none of my colleagues lose their positions. Um, and then that that situation then receiving the funding, uh, I did feel a bit, um, I felt a bit bad <laughs> about receiving that funding. Thankfully that funding has already been allocated, so it's not like I'm taking it from anywhere else, but, but yeah, I was definitely surprised. Hmm. In terms of gauntlet, I don't know the process that went on behind the scenes to make the decision, so. So, but I mean, what, what was involved in, was it a fairly standard application that you had to make? Or did you have to plea your case in person? I mean, uh, uh, was this a fairly standard kind of, of uh, 
application process for you? Yeah, in the UW system, the application process, whenever you're, you're applying for any of these internal UW grants, it's usually you have to submit as thoroughly as possible a complete research design with some literature to kind of provide foundations for your research design. And it's very difficult because you have to provide it within five pages. You know, the average journal article is 22 pages. So providing an entire research design for a year long uh, project while anticipating what reviewers are going to say, oh, this is flawed, or I need to know more about this before I can decide to approve this. That's a very difficult game to play. Hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Hansen, who is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. We are talking, we have been talking about a research project for which he just received a a lovely grant from the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. And earlier we talked about uh, uh, an earlier research study that involved uh, the dissemination of, of information related to COVID-19 uh, from various uh, county governments across uh, the entire United States. Professor Hansen, I thought in our, our closing minutes, it would be interesting to get a few thoughts from you on what it's like to teach political science during uh a presidential election year, and particularly when we are talking about a political election that is happening when uh, our country is so uh, sharply and painfully divided politically. Um, first of all, what kind of challenge does that pose for you in terms of, for instance, the framing of questions, the guiding of, of, of discussion, uh, in, in terms of doing this in a way that uh, is fair and, and most richly benefits the student. So I will say internally, it's very difficult, right? I'm a person that has my own political opinion and I have my own desires and wishes for the United States. Um, and that's a difficult thing, you know, because you have to approach these things in the most neutral way. You know, there's kind of this, this stereotype that we want to indoctrinate students, but I can't get them to read the syllabus half the time. Um, but <laughs> We try to approach it as neutral as possible. And in that part of it, though, the external part, the approaching it as neutral as possible, that's always been something that's been very easy for me. I think that students appreciate the fact that I come from an approach trying to understand all sides and get dialogue going. I have had students complain that I am way too liberal in class. And I've had in that same exact class, a student complain that I was way too conservative. So. You just never know. And a lot of that depends on playing the room of the students, right? You want the students to think no matter what ideological plot, uh, direction they're coming from. You want them to think about the topics critically. Uh, so, you know, for somebody that's teaching political science, talking about this with my colleagues, sometimes you have to be the conservative in the room to get students thinking about issues differently. And sometimes you have to be the liberal in the room to get your conservative students thinking differently. So it's about coming into the classroom reading the demographic of the students, reading their ideological profile, and engaging with them on an equal level and allowing them to express their ideas and opinions and have a dialogue. Hmm. How divisive do the politics get in your classrooms versus sort of how it tends to play out in the general public, in which I think under most circumstances, at least, it is not very easy for people on either side of the divide uh, to cordially and meaningfully uh, exchange ideas or you know, communicate about their divide. I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of insult hurling and, and going on in both directions. 
and 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 I should think you know that's there's not much place for that in the typical political science classroom and and discussion. Uh, how difficult is that to navigate? So I and my courses allow allow a lot of leeway, probably too much leeway. I allow them to get a little bit uh, frustrated. I allow them to get a little bit loud at times, as long as there's no name calling or anything like this. Uh, but one of the joys of teaching at a university like Parkside is it is a small university and it's not as though you're going into a class with 150 students and they're never going to see each other again. These students, regardless of their ideological profile, uh, they're friends, right? They have to take classes together. If you are a political science major, you have to take these, these classes and you're going to be in class with the same 13 to 18 people. So one of the joys of teaching at Parkside is seeing this engagement and this discussion with each other, knowing that I have to respect you because I'm going to have 10 more classes with you over the next two years. <laughs> Therefore, we can have a dialogue back and forth. It's, that, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about teaching at a smaller institution. Yeah. I noticed in your biography that uh, one of your areas of particular focus is the voting behavior of the radical right. Yep. Um, I wonder if you could, first of all, tell us uh, briefly, I'm afraid, what, what drew you to be interested in that in particular and how you see that playing out right now uh, in the age of Donald Trump, if we want to call uh, these current times that. I mean, what, what, what are we seeing with that sector of our voting population right now? So my interest in the radical right is, uh, my boy's been very interested in Europe. I have my sister's grandparents come from Germany. Uh, my sister's dad is, you know, is a second generation immigrant from Germany. Um, so I've always had interest in Europe and my mentor throughout undergrad, he primarily focused on Europe. So I just had this inherent interest in these types of topics. Um, in terms of voting for the radical right, my research is focused very much on underrepresented groups. So studying the radical right, I want to know who, is, who are the people that are voting for these parties that seemingly want to restrict citizens' rights and want to, you want to create these policies that negatively impact underrepresented groups. Um, and that extends to my research on gender politics also. So my approach throughout my research has been to try and understand, try to use the position that I have, whatever privileged position I may have, and use that position to study and help understand better the treatment of these underrepresented groups. What we find with voting for the radical right is it's, it's primarily just xenophobia or anti-refugee attitudes. Um, so when we estimate a model, I focus and have several publications on Germany. When we estimate models trying to predict people voting for the alternative for Germany, which is the radical right populist party, we see that it's just anti-immigrant xenophobic attitudes is the main predictor. Hmm. How hard is it for you to, in, in a sense, a approach some of the, let's say, the most distasteful elements of the radical right uh, in order to come up with some sort of understanding of who they are and why they see the world the way that they do. Uh, to, to develop that level of understanding without, in a sense, excusing some of what they believe and do that I think most civilized people would say is, is inexcusable. Um, is that a difficult road to navigate? That is a fantastic question. So it, it, it can be tough at times, you know, thinking about some of these, these elements within these parties and what they believe and approaching it and trying to study, you know, why they believe these things because you view it as so irrational. 
uh, and it can be difficult. To give you an example, this, this fall I'm teaching a course, an upper division course at Parkside called Fascism, Nazism, and the Contemporary Radical Right. Hmm. And, you know, I, when I prep this course, I can only, when I provide the prep and create lecture slides for this course, I can only spend so much time doing it. So the first, uh, let's say, six weeks of class, I have them focusing on fascist, Italian fascism and Nazism in World War II. And I have them reading these writings by Joseph Goebbels. Uh, and Adolf Hitler and these people, and I, I have to limit the amount of time I spend prepping. I can't. If I spend too much time doing it, I really don't want to, you know, I really have a negative reaction to it. Um, oddly, I found that if I read it in German, I do a better job with it. Like, it doesn't ah. impact me as much. For, for, or, sorry, if I read it in English, it doesn't impact me as much. Uh, maybe that's because for in German, there's there's words to say particular things that I just are so much worse, you know, cutting, there's a word for everything. So uh, I tried to limit the amount of time I spend on a daily basis prepping for this course this fall. Interesting. Last quick question as we are heading into the last few months of this presidential campaign, and I really hope I can have you back on the program closer to Election Day to give us your, your, your thoughts on how things are playing out. At this moment, as we are recording this interview, the Democratic Virtual Convention is underway. Um, what difference do you think it's going to make in this campaign with the fact that uh, uh, neither convention is going to be able to occur as it normally would? Uh, do you think that's going to be uh, significant in one direction or the other? Or are there other forces at play that are the predominant uh, influence on how all of this is going to turn out? There are currently pundits that are making the argument that because the, De the Democratic National Convention is virtual, uh, it's not it's going to have a it's not going to have the same impact it would on voters. So these people think that, you know, primarily what political scientists view as these conventions, they view them as free advertisement. You know, so you, you pump you pump millions of dollars into a campaign. But this is your this is your chance to take advantage of the fact that it's free and that you don't have to pay for this, this seemingly free advertising. Uh, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that position that this is not going to be a good thing. I actually think watching the DNC last night for two hours of it, that it's more accessible for the average citizen. They don't have to be at the convention and they're not exhausted. People, when you provide too much information, they just get exhausted with it. <laughs> you know, this Democratic National Convention is going to be 16 hours shorter. I think that's a good thing. I think that people need the specific information on the candidates. They need an understanding of who the people are that are supporting and voting them. Um, and that's all they really need to be digesting. Well, we will be watching uh, very carefully how uh, all of this unfolds. And in the meantime, I'm really grateful for uh, the opportunity to have this conversation with you about the really interesting research that uh, you have done and are continuing to do. Dr. Michael Hansen, uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, our neighbors right up the road to the north of us here at Gateway Technical College. Professor Hansen, I really appreciate you joining me today on The Morning Show. It was great to meet you and great to speak with you, and I hope we can speak again. Thank you for having me. It was really nice.